Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are serious about the retail banking business, and there is a window of opportunity opening up in the IPO market. How long will it stay open? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hi, everybody. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here in New York in the studio packed house today to discuss a couple of big, big stories. Uh, Grocer had to be pushed into the control room. Once again. Once again. Uh, I am here in the studio with our dear friends Maureen Farrell, Corey Drebush, and Liz Hoffman. And there's... I just, I just want to let you guys fight first off, is what I really want to do. Uh, interesting stories today. Look, Liz had a story about uh, some of the banks, some of the big Wall Street banks and their new businesses. And Liz, it was a very good story on C1. <laughs> yeah. That, not quite, the- <laughs> not quite the, the Corey Marine story that was on... A one. Are you stirring s- the pot there, Paul? I'm, I'm stirring <laughs> it a little bit. You guys owe me six column inches of glory. I'll be back for it. Uh, how do you feel about that, Marie? Knocking, knocking Liz Hoffman off of A one, all the way back to C one. I know it was a great story, Liz. But I mean, the IPO market is going to come back, or so we say, in September for a little while. I actually view C one as the new A one. You do. C1 yes. is the new A1? Actually, I because I, I usually reside on C3, I view C3 as the new A1. I so thought C3. that Money Beat was the new A1. <laughs> good, good point, Corey. <laughs> wow, Corey is now our favorite reporter yeah. in the newsroom. Uh, let, let's talk for about Liz's story. Liz, this was an interesting story. A couple of big Wall Street banks in the, the, the height of the crisis, they got themselves bank, banking charters so that they could be part of the whole bailout package, so they're not just investment firms. And everyone thought that was just kind of a smokescreen so they could get their hands on, on some bailout money. But, but was it? It turns out no. I mean, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are the two um, investment banks that survived the crisis in, in very different forms. Um, and here we are eight years later, and they are doing banky things. <laughs> they're raising deposits. Uh, they're lending to, to regular folks. They're making, um, to some extent, mortgages and, and all kinds of things that you might have gone to like a Chase or a, a Bank of America mm-hmm. for in the past. They they want to be your bank. And, and in Goldman's case, even more interesting is they're doing part of it online. They're doing all of it online. Yeah. So... Um, Morgan Stanley has a sort of a built-in advantage here where they have this huge wealth management uh, arm. It's about half of their business. And so they've got three and a half million Americans who you, who have a financial advisor for things like retirement planning and stockbroking and stuff like that. Um, so they kind of already know these people. And they say, well, you have us for all this, but you still have a mortgage at Wells Fargo and you still have a checking account at Citi. Why don't you just do all of it with us? So they're kind of trying to, to be all things to people they already have. Goldman doesn't really have that uh, that sort of retail network. And so they're getting people where you find new customers on the internet. So right. they're doing um, online deposits and and um, going to start lending online this fall. How much how much of this has just sort of been an evolution? Like when they first sort of decided, oh, okay, we're going to become bank holding companies back in you know the fall of two thousand eight. Did they really expect? Eight years later, that they were going to be, you know, trying to get deposits. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it, it, they they became bank holding companies, as Paul says, to to sort of get access to the the 
cheap federal funds and kind of assure everyone that they weren't going anywhere. Um, but at that time, no one really knew what the future was going to look like, and people thought trading would, would come back and would be strong, and they'd kind of be able to go back to their roots. Um, that hasn't really happened. Um, you know, fixed income trading, sort of the heart and soul of these, these firms, has really fallen off and continues to fall. Um, it's just getting a lot harder to make money in sexy ways, so you have to make it in unsexy ways. Well, I, and I guess that's one of my questions, too, is, okay, I'll accept that they're serious about this and they really want to build these businesses, and they're doing it because they need to find new sources of revenue. But correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like this is the biggest growth opportunity out there. It seems like there's already a couple of players, at least, uh, in this space how much money can they realistically expect to make from going into this kind of banking, this well, kind of retail banking? You'll be unsurprised to know they haven't put public targets on it, I think, because they know it's going to be a bit of an yeah. uphill battle. Um, look, Morgan Stanley has some internal estimates that say there's as much as three-quarters of a trillion dollars that clients they already have keep elsewhere. If they can get some fraction of that, you know, they're paying um, – Right now, they pay between one and two basis points for deposits. They're going to start paying a little bit more this fall, probably about a half a percentage point. Um, but they take that and lend it out in a mortgage at, you know, three or four percent. Yeah, interest rates are low, but that's still a pretty good spread. So there is money to be made. It's a huge white space for them. I mean, you can grow market share in things like, um, you know, advisory and underwriting and, and that stuff. But these two are both pretty good at that already, and yeah. you kind of have to go where you're not. I would think also, um, having like, formerly covered the big brokerages and for Morgan Stanley, uh, all those big brokerages actually come like November, they decide they put out their incentive packages for their financial advisors. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what these incentives are to get some of that trillion plus dollars mm -hmm. over to Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I mean, getting brokers to to sell these products is always the challenge. Um, they're typically um, Morgan Stanley can keep a higher share of things like loans and other things than they than they do on um, things like you know stock brokerage commissions, like yeah. that kind of stuff. So it's definitely more lucrative for them. Corey's right, like the extent to which the financial advisors buy in and really do push these products. Um, you know, I, I, but I think at the end of the day, it's like people buy houses and they don't necessarily think they should ask Morgan Stanley for a mortgage. So a lot of it's going to be awareness and incentives and trying right. to get the word out. What about in terms of how this affects their 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 sort of perception? Like when you think of the, the typical Goldman Sachs client, you don't think of somebody who is plunking down one dollar. But the, the, the Goldman online bank account, you can open that bank account. As little as one dollar, you can open that bank account. Can open it with a dollar. Yeah, a dollar. it's a it's a it's a as much a cultural thing for these banks as it is a business thing. I think. Um, you know, they are the elite of the elite, and mm -hmm. they trade on that in the corporate and investment banking space. I mean, they a lot of their cash and a lot of their business comes from being very high-touch, very um, high-end. And so the question for them, I think, going forward is how do you sort of package yourself for Main Street without losing the edge that, that you enjoy right. on the Wall Street side of your business? I mean, Goldman kind of very interestingly did it by just not calling it Goldman. They're going to have a new... Um, online lending platform this fall called Marcus. Uh, it's called Marcus by Goldman, and Marcus Goldman was a co-founder of the firm back in the 1840s. So, you know, it's it, it, it kind of is Goldman-y, but it also kind of is like Silicon Valley and Buzzy, and, you know, you buy your, your mattresses from Casper and your, your <laughs> razors from Harry's, and you can buy your unsecured personal loan from, from Marcus. So um, I think there is, like, a cultural challenge they both have to confront. Yeah. How much um, Morgan Stanley right after 
the sort of financial crisis had sort of moved to coming more boring and like liking the recurring revenue of having the wealth management business. More, Goldman Sachs feels like it's been sort of more like had been dragged to this reality, kicking and screaming. How is this really is Goldman Sachs still hoping that their traditional business is going to rebound strongly or are they waking up to a new reality that they might not? That's the question, I think. Uh, Goldman, more so than anyone else, has has since the crisis been waiting for things to get back to the way they were. Morgan Stanley decided they didn't really know whether that was going to happen or not. And they didn't want to bank on it. So as you note, they diversified into wealth management. They bought Smith Barney. They have this very boring half of the business that turns out these, these steady results. But look, Goldman's been a lot more volatile, but they both had ROEs, uh, returns on equity, kind of like comparable to each other in the last year or two. So, you know, I, I don't know how long you can kick the can down the road. And um, Goldman is has a very long view of things. I mean, they were in London way before anyone. They were in China way before anyone. They're They're able to kind of take a long view of these things. Which they're going to need because even as you grow deposits and loans, I mean, they're such a small blip. Um, they've yeah. got you know 120 billion in deposits, and J.P. Morgan has a trillion. I mean, it's not even close. Hmm. So um, you kind of have to play the long game, and and they have proven themselves, you know, over 100 years to be very good at that. Yeah. All right. Let's leave it there because Liz Hoffman has another meeting she has to get to. So we're going to let you go. Less fun meeting, but of course, <laughs> less fun. Than this. Yeah. Uh, Liz, thanks a lot. Appreciate you coming in and talking about guys. it. We will take this quick break, and we will be back on the other side talking about the IPO market. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington and on the campaign trail. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vini, Stephen Grosser, Maureen Farrell, and Corey Drybush. Drybush. Sorry, Corey, I got your name okay. wrong. I, but I've done it so many other times I know. correctly. You got it right earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the studio here, talking about the IPO market. Uh, before we get to this, I just want to, as always, let you know that we have a lot of great podcasts. You can check them out at wsj.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play music app. And listen, this uh, upcoming, a couple upcoming interesting interviews we've got going on here, so I wanted to, to get these on your radar now. Look for them. Uh, later this week, we will have Ken Fisher, best-selling author and investment guru. He'll be coming into the studio tomorrow, actually, so look out for that one. Uh, probably over the weekend, we will drop this next one on you. A uh, gentleman, author by the name of Manu Sadia, has a book out called Treconomics, which is the economics of Star Trek. Nice. Which is very interesting. Uh, 50th anniversary of the premiere is next week, so we're looking to do something around that. And then later in September, Zoltan Posner, Pazar, who is an economist at Credit Suisse, he'll be in, kind of talk about the Fed, the election, what's going to be going on in the fall. So that'll be interesting. So a lot of interesting ones. We want to get those on your radar. Don't miss out on the Money Beat Podcast. But right now, let's talk about the IPO market. We all know, well, if you don't know, you, you should know, the IPO market has not had a very good 2016. But... 
things might change, but that change might not last very long. Uh, Marine and Corey, page one story, which we all rubbed in Liz Hoppin's face a minute ago. Uh, and a morning money beat. And a, a morning ago. a week ago, yes. Which See? is the new A one. That exactly. <laughs> That's why money beat is the A one. You read it first. You do read it first. In your morning right? email. In your morning email. Oh, sure. Let's plug those, too. Uh, uh, morning Money Beat, Evening Money Beat. You can get those newsletters delivered right to your email. Great preview, great recap, everything you need to uh, get a get your head start and uh, your wrap-up on the markets. That right? sounds good to me. Yeah, is that yeah. good? Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk about the IPO story, really. Let's get into this here. Uh, Maureen, why has 2016 been such a lousy year for the IPO market? There's been a good amount of volatility. I mean, every... Every window where we thought things were going to kick off, something happened, whether it was Brexit or, you know, earlier in the year, it was this big fall in tech stocks, mm-hmm. which made tech companies really wary. Another wrinkle that we've also written about is the fact that a number of companies were just about to come to market and they wound up selling themselves instead. A lot of opted for M&A and m and is down from last year, but it's at still a pretty high level this year compared to IPOs, which are way down from the last two years. Yeah. And then, why would why is September going to be a change? Why, why would September be any different? I mean, I think September. I think oh, you got the you know the the, the, the Fed yeah. meeting coming up. I think uh, the elections heating up. Like, like, why are things changing? Here's my question for Corey: Can you count the ways why, of why, <laughs> for why this should be a really robust IPO market? Count the ways? Or list the ways. List the ways? Well, timing is everything. And as Maureen alluded to, in the beginning of the year, we started out 2016 with a huge fall in stocks, um, a big correction, came back up, but a lot of actively actively managed funds just never caught up to that. And they were shell-shocked. They didn't want to touch any new issuances until they figured out what was going on with the economy, make sure we weren't going into a recession. Things started calming down in April and May. We started to see some IPOs picking back up. And I think that we saw some that actually did very well, which got a lot of executives at companies still private to say, maybe this is something we want to do. But it takes a few months to get actually everything together to be able to go. So even if in April or May you were thinking this is a good time to maybe get ready, we're not we weren't able to see that until right around now. So that's a good time. Stock market has also weathered the Brexit really well. We had two days sell off of five percent, came right back up within two weeks, have hit eleven record highs since early July since early July and volatility just a couple weeks ago hit a two year low. So things are looking good. Yeah, no, I mean, this summer, I mean, typically when you see stocks at an all-time high, you would suspect that the IPO market would yes. be robust. Right, yeah. right. And it, and it, you know, and it really, since it, this is more than just a 2016 s- story, this is a, this goes back to, you know, the summer of 2015, where mm-hmm. we really saw, saw this, you know, the, the IPO market sort of stall. Yeah, last last fall was the beginning, of- and that was right after a spate of volatility that ended the summer. The like you know that came when uh, China devalued its currency. Yeah, last year uh, a lot of the IPOs that went in 2015 though just didn't do well, and 
are still underwater, I believe, on average if, from their IPO prices that won in 2015. But 2016 IPOs, if you did make it out, if you were able to get over that hump and go public, they're doing really well. I forgot, Maureen. You they're can, up about 25% yeah. this year. As a, as a group. As a group yeah. on average, as of Friday's close, which yeah. is, I mean, the stock market's up, but that's well outpaced yeah. the stock market. Right. You've done how, really well as an investor. And how have tech IPOs this year done? Well, look at Twilio. Yeah, they've been incredible. It's what Twilio's up like two hundred and fifty percent last I look. Line's been doing really well. Yeah, Atlassian. And that's a, that's a nice you know, and you, which you alluded to earlier, Corey. But it's a nice switch from you know, sort of two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, where you saw a lot of like the sort of tech IPOs underperform after going public mm-hmm. and really kind of get hammered. I mean, there was a number that fell below their IPO price, in fact, mm-hmm. within you know three months of going public. And now the ones we've seen are just completely on fire. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, the ones that went this year went at pretty hefty discounts. Yeah. So they were priced to have some big upside, whereas last year's or two years ago... We're priced to squeeze the every last, maybe they would argue, but I would say we're priced to squeeze pretty much every last dollar. So what, uh, what names can we expect in this window over the next month and a half or so? So it's, the interesting thing is we're seeing them in a wide variety of industries. So there's Valvoline. Right. Um, there's Elf, a cosmetics company. Nutanix. These are all the ones that are supposed to go. That yeah. bankers are running yeah, up. Yeah, that, that Elf. Tech. I swear to God, I was in a, uh, the grocery store this weekend and went down the aisle. It was the first time I ever saw that. They had a whole Elf thing. I said, Elf. I never heard of Elf. It's eyes, eyes, lips, face. It's a beauty care yeah, thing. Yeah, cosmetics know? company. Yeah. Not that I was buying cosmetics, <laughs> but I just happened to notice it. And you I'd were never doing seen research. It before. I was doing <laughs> research. Right, for this story. Yeah. You know? um, so, you know, not exactly a household name, but, but a name that is clearly in stores. Valvoline, kind of a household name. I mean, you know Valvoline. So, and that should be one of the biggest ones. Yeah. We've heard that they could raise about $750 million. Obviously, that can change up until, you know, the night before they price. But the th- I think what we're seeing is there are going to be a lot, you know, presumably in case as long as nothing happens in the next few weeks. But they're all going to be relatively smaller ones. It's not like the yeah. Ubers, like these names that we've been waiting for. We're not going to likely see them this year. But we will see a good test of the market just to see how they perform in a lot of different industries. Is, it, is, it, is tech going to be one of them? Tech's going to be out there. I mean, I think Nutanix is going to be really one of the few billion-dollar startups that's going to go this year. So that, But we should see some other smaller tech firms also. Because we've talked about this before on the podcast, that there's a cultural sort of shift that is taking place in Silicon Valley where a lot of companies are sort of eschewing the, you know, going public. That's, I mean, they've had a lot of different options. I mean, the private capital has been so robust. We obviously saw their valuations get bid up so high. So there has been this fear of the down round, it seems like. That's been a lot of what's keeping companies on the sidelines or you know, bankers say that at some point they just have to get comfortable with the fact that, you know, we'll take the down round, maybe sell a little bit of stock just to get out there. But I s- still think for a lot of the bigger companies, there's more of a, ten- a wish to kind of wait and see and yeah. if they have enough capital yeah. to get through. And uh, on, along those lines, I mean, this window we're preparing for in September isn't going to be super long That's a good point. So, yeah. 
we Maureen's named quite a few companies to go in a pretty short period of time. We're anticipating because the Fed does meet in what is it, uh, September twenty first, twenty second, and. I mean, you look at Fed fund futures, right. investors are getting getting the sense that they could really see a rate increase. And I just don't anticipate many CEOs wanting to be on the road with as the Fed meets and decides to raise rates again. Yeah. For for 2016 as a whole, is it still looking to be – What is it, is, is it the worst year on record or – No, since 2009. Since 2009, okay. So is it, it's, it's, down 50, it's down 56%. Down 50, yeah. It looks like even if we see like a, a bit of a flood of IPOs mm-hmm. come to market in the next six weeks or so, we're still going to be way down for the year because typically the fourth quarter like, accounts for roughly one-third of the volume of IPOs. And after, with the you know, we'll see the what happens with the Fed, but then the election season is going to hit really heat up. So bankers right. are saying by mid-October, people are not going to want to go on the road and wait till December. So we'll have like about six weeks where we won't see very much activity. December, even if it heats up, you know, all told, it's not going to yeah. be much. It's it's around, it's around like like only ten billion or something has been raised, right? Twelve point nine. Twelve point nine. Yeah. Think about that. How for big the was year. Yeah, for, for the, the year. year. So far, yeah. U.S. listed. Think about ideas. how much Facebook raised. How mm-hmm. much Alibaba I was raised. Say it's like half of Alibaba. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it it really is a stark contrast. And sixty-three companies. I mean, that's not a lot to go out. Right. All right. Well, ladies, thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate the time. Good story. Good story. Uh, Everyone, want to thank you for listening. We will catch up with you soon. Remember, Ken Fisher this week. So look for that one. It'll be in your feeds because you're all subscribers. Of course, you don't want to ever miss a a Money Beat podcast. So look for that one, and we'll catch up with you later. Thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.